Please pray with me. Father, I pray that we would remember in this moment the things that matter to you. And I pray that we would remember that you are our creator and that you would sustain us in all things. Amen. A number of years ago, and I don't even remember who it was, a friend asked a group of us sitting around a table, if your house was on fire and you knew all the people and animals would be safe, what's the thing you would grab as you ran out the door if you only had time to grab one thing? And I answered wrong. I said, without hesitation, my fishing poles. <laughs> like, there wasn't even a hesitation. And my wife said, not your wedding pictures? I answered wrong. It's an interesting test, though. It actually is one of those things that reveals your priorities. You take urgency of time and a gut-level decision, and you, you realize very quickly what matters most to you. We're pretty good when time is pressing, it filtering away those things that we don't actually value. I mean, it's not just if your house is on fire. Look at the way a college student during exam week dresses, and you realize that we know how to filter away the things that don't really matter to focus on the things that do. Watch a CPA during tax season. We know how to filter away when time is precious, the things that are not important. This is revealed most clearly at the end of life, when time truly is precious. In those final moments, you rarely hear somebody saying, I wish I had been able to buy a few more clothes, or I wish I could have spent more time on my golf game. And said, what do they say? I wish that I'd spent more time with my family. I wished I had loved better. When time is precious, we filter down to the things that matter. Our passage in 1 Peter opens with that sort of urgency. Time is short. And the passage itself calls us to the very few things that really matter. Peter begins by saying the end of all things is at hand. Time is precious. Let's remember the things that matter most. Of course, it can be difficult for us to believe that time actually is precious, that the end of all things actually is at hand. Objectively, we recognize that we could die at any moment. And objectively, we recognize that Jesus could come back at any moment. But the reality is, is that those things seem way off in the future. And so we live as if we have all the time in the world to chase things that are of very little importance. But Peter throws cold water on that. And he says the end is at hand. In other words, remember the things that actually matter. Don't get caught up in the things that are not top-tier importance. The list that he gives us is remarkably short, and I'm grateful for that. It's not a big, long Peter. I can never approach all of these things. It's short, and it's succinct. Listen to what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. His priority list is very short and sweet. And really, you could say it only includes two things. The end is near, prayer and love. The end is near, prayer and love. He fleshes out what he means by love in two circumstances, hospitality and using our gifts to serve others. But the list is sweet and clear. The end is near, prayer and love. These are the things that if only two things are to happen in a day, he says, let them be these two. These are the things that he says, if the time is precious, let them be these two, prayer and love. It reminds me of a famous story of Corey Toon Boom, who was being driven to an airport, and they were late, and she said they were going to miss the flight, and she said, we must stop and pray. And the driver says, we don't have time to pray, and I believe her response is, we don't have time not to pray. And so they stopped and pulled the car over on the road and prayed, rather than rushed like mad through traffic. And of course, the plane was delayed, and she was there in plenty of time. Peter's point, if only two things happen, prayer and love. What he says specifically about prayer is to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's pointing to something, and that is that the loss of self-control actually hampers our prayers. That mental and spiritual inebriation limits our prayers. And he's talking about something bigger than just alcohol when he talks about being sober-minded, certainly including that. He's talking about all of the types of loss of self-control that keep us from being able to pray. Our tempers, giving in to a life or a mentality of jealousy, fostering and holding on to bitterness, cultivating self-righteousness or pride, harboring hatred, living according to passions or fleshly desires that distort us and pull us away from where we're supposed to be going. He's talking about a whole host of things, things that the Bible characterizes as mental or spiritual drunkenness, the loss of self-control. Dissipation is a word that you'll use. Things that scatter our minds and pull us away from the where we're fo- supposed to be focusing. Things that prevent us from focusing on God. Things that prevent us from listening attentively attentively to him. Things that prevent us from actually praying genuinely for his kingdom in his will because we're so infatuated with our own in that moment. The reality is is that we can't pray with depth, depth when our mind is scattered like that. The prayers that we send up in the midst of a fit of jealousy or a loss of temper or a moment of drunkenness, the prayers that we send up in those moments are like flares, but they're nothing like the sustained attention and patience and waiting that characterizes deep and rich and true prayer. And so Peter says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, be self-controlled and sober-minded 
But those things aren't the end. There are plenty of people who are self-controlled and far from God. There are plenty of people who are sober-minded and far from God. He says be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. The reality is, is that prayer is more important than anything else we do in our day. I know you all know this, but let that sink to the depths of your soul. That prayer is quite literally more important than anything else we do. It's more important than the news feed. It's more important than keeping up with what's going on in the world. It's more important than our social media accounts. It's more important than our to-do list for the day. The errands that we need to run, the jobs that we need to do. It's more important than the bits of pleasure that we're looking forward to at different moments of the day. It's more important than any of those things. And each of us has things that prevent us from prayer. Each of us has distractions senses of obligation, a feeling, but I've got to get this done. Each of us have these different things that pull us away from it. And Peter's saying, strip those things away. Devote yourself to prayer. Time is precious. The reality is that our lives only actually matter in as much as they're anchored to God. Getting a lot done, but not in the name of God, does not matter. Our lives only matter in as much as they're anchored to God. It does not matter how efficient you are. It does not matter how much you make. Our lives matter in as much as they are anchored to God. And prayer is that anchor. Peter is saying, devote yourself to prayers. Time is precious. His second priority is love. And Peter's justification is simple. That love covers up sin. This is the end of verse 8. Not covers up in the sense of hides it in some deceitful way. Covers is just a Hebrew idiom for forgives. You see that in Psalm 32. Blessed is a man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In other words, love covers sin in the sense that it enables people to live together with the shame and the guilt and the hurt of their sin pushed off the table. It's like you're on a family vacation and there's been a big fight. And on the last day, everybody says we've only got one day left. We're going to live as if that thing didn't occur. We're going to live in love before the time is lost. He says live in love. Time is urgent because love covers a multitude of sins. He calls us to love in two very specific ways. And the first is hospitality. It's actually a little startling for us how much God cares about hospitality. And I think it's startling for us, probably, maybe I'm just talking about myself, but probably because we filter hospitality through the lens of good manners. I was born in Alabama. Hospitality matters deeply in Alabama. It is all about your social standing and class and the way you work within society. Hospitality is deeply important. It's a part of good manners and the way that you work in the world in peace. But that's what a hospitality that is good manners rarely steps outside of one's social class. And there's always a limit to it, a very polite and expected form that it can take, and you're not supposed to encroach on anything beyond that. It's a way society functions, like grease making the wheels turn. The biblical hospitality that God cares so much about 
is far deeper and richer and bigger than that. It's like that thing that is hospitality, that is, good, that is good manners, is only the pale shadow cast by true hospitality. Because true hospitality is, ex- is extended to those who are within the family of faith, but it's also extended to those who are outside. It's extended to those who are like us than w- that we understand and agree with, and it's extended to those who are unlike us, who we disagree with. It's extended to those who have enough, but it's extended all the more to those who have nothing to those who are poor and hurting and in need. The biblical portrayal of hospitality is radical, and it extends to those who are forgotten, to the people in prison, to the homeless, to the naked, to the hungry. It knows no boundaries. And unlike the polite form of hospitality that's only about receiving one into, someone into one's home, biblical hospitality pursues and goes out to where the other person is. And so what's the parable Jesus told of true neighborly love, true hospitality? It's across racial lines, it's across religious lines, and it's a Samaritan in Judean territory rescuing someone beaten to death on the side of the road. God's hospitality is a pursuit after those who are lost and broken, lonely, to bring them in, to give them a home, to give them healing. His hospitality knows no boundaries. It's startling that in the urgency of time is short. I think the call to prayer makes sense to us, perhaps. But in the urgency of time is short, the very next thing that Peter says is show hospitality without grumbling. And you say, why does God care so much about this that if I could only do two things, it would be prayer in this sort of vigorous hospitality? And I think the answer is very simply because hospitality is actually the posture of God. That's his character. It's what he looks like perpetually seeking those without a home, seeking those without a place, seeking those without a family, seeking those who have no one to love them. And he goes after them to bring them in, to give them healing. It's why Jesus was always eating with the worst of the worst people. It's what he rebuked the Pharisees for, that you don't know how to show mercy to those who are hurting, to widows, to strangers. The hospitality that is the posture of God Peter says, this is your top priority, prayer, and love one another through this sort of hospitality. The second way that he says to love others is to use our gifts freely to serve them. And I'm not going to spend much time elaborating on this because I think that it's pretty clear. To be honest, I've seen this over and over in this congregation already. I've been encouraged by the creative and genuine way that I've seen people use their gifts to take care of other people. I don't feel the need to say much about it. But the only thing that I would say is to actively resist the temptation to say my gifts aren't as important as so-and-so's. So temptation that I think plenty of people face, they look at the more public gifts and they say that person is gifted, that person's something special, and who am I? Resist that temptation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, when he's talking about the use of spiritual gifts, he says those members of the body that seem to have less honor, God bestows more honor upon them. He's talking about the exercise of our gifts, and he says the ones that get overlooked, God gives more honor to. 
In other words, God doesn't see the ranking the way we see the ranking. We look at people who are up front and say they are the important ones, and God sees in secret and honors differently than we do. Resist the temptation either to grow in pride and think your gifts are better than others, and resist the temptation to think that your gifts don't matter. The only thing that God cares is that you would faithfully use the things he's placed in your hands to serve those people around you. Whatever they are, use them to serve the people. This is Peter's entire top-tier list of you've got one day left. Pray. Strip away everything that prevents you from prayer. All the loss of self-control, all of the distractions, strip it away. Pray. And then love particularly through this vigorous hospitality and through offering your gifts to other people. I don't know about y'all, but it actually feels like a sort of startling list if you only had one day left. But this is what we're called to. These are top-tier priorities, most important sort of things. I think that most of us, when we hear those things, because we've been around, would go, yep, yep, check, check. We acknowledge them superficially. But it's not often that we actually let them sink in and begin to reshape what we actually do with our time. To reshape the way we think about our life, our pursuits, our goals. Imagine what it would mean if your goals were redefined as prayer. As hospitality to those without a home or a family is use of my gifts to serve other people. Imagine if your life were shaken and everything fell out that wasn't aligned with those things and all that remained was filtered through those three basic categories. Use of gifts to serve, hospitality, prayer. I think most of us realize if we were to start examining our bank accounts or our time, what we do on a Saturday morning when we have a moment to ourselves, most of us would realize that to actually step into seeking to live that way would be a great act of faith. It would be an enormous act of faith. Most days, there's things that just seem and feel more pressing than these things. Most days, the distractions that entice us seem like they will offer more pleasure or fulfillment than these things. There are so many things making it difficult to actually step into this pattern or rhythm of life that Peter describes. We live in a world that's actively sweeping us away from it. The new number one idol in our world is self-care. Some estimate that the industry is worth $1.5 trillion right now. Self-care, treat yourself Take care of yourself. That's priority one that every advertisement is screaming at you. That's priority one that every bit of our entertainment industry is teaching us. Serve yourself. Enjoy yourself. Fulfill yourself. And the Lord says no. Pray. Show hospitality. Serve others with your gifts. You feel how radical it is and how much faith it would take to believe that perhaps God is wiser than we are, that he knows more than we do. It would take faith to follow God in this. But God is wiser than us. This is indeed what he calls us to. 
He calls us to wait on him in prayer. To stop working, actually. He knows more about self-care, by the way, than our world does. He knows that what we actually need is not a new industry or a new hobby, but that what we actually need in the depths of our soul is to sit in silence before him, to rest with him, to be close to him. He knows that the first priority, the thing that our souls actually are desperate for, hungry for, is not another form of treat yourself, but instead to become a creature again. He is your creator. He knows you. He knows what you need. And so the thing that we are called to in this very simple short list of priorities is first, would you go treat him like your creator? Would you sit before him in need, in patience, in silence? Would you sit before him and treat him as your creator through your prayers, through your expectancy and your hopes and your faith? All of the effort to serve and satisfy ourselves does not work. And Peter's saying, go back to being a creature. Go back to waiting in prayer. And out of that, out of that restoration of soul that God offers in those moments, out of that flows the strength to stand up in his name and serve those who are in need. Not because we are the ones who make it happen. Remember the first prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. He's the one doing these things. In prayer, we realize that the burden is not on our shoulders to fix our brother or sister or husband or wife or son or daughter or friend. In prayer is not our burden to make life work for our children or for the people around us. In prayer, we realize these things are not ours. They are God's. And so in the freedom of being a creature rather than creator, we can re-enter the work that we are called to do with love, with hospitality, with generous use of our gifts. It's a beautiful picture, but one that would take great faith to step into. I prayed at the beginning that we would recognize that the Lord is our creator. Because that's what lurks behind everything that Peter says. That's my prayer for myself. That I am not the creator. That I would recognize that. And that in recognizing that God is enough, I would wait on him and let him reshape me. Amen.